Hello and welcome to Japan Explained. In the last episode, I covered the history of sake, and not surprisingly, it took up all the time I had. So, this time, I want to bring your attention to the modern times and answer questions about how sake is actually made, how you can pick the right one to buy, and how to drink it correctly. And can you then drink it incorrectly? Disclaimer, this episode does not encourage you to drink alcohol, because alcohol is bad for your health. The information is provided solely for the purpose of introducing the cultural and culinary traditions of Japan. With that in mind, let's begin. Sake is a brewed beverage. It's not a product of simple fermentation like wine, nor is it a distilled beverage like whiskey. If you still want to compare, it's closer to beer than anything else. But, of course, it's not beer either. So, first of all, let's take a look at how sake is made. Believe me, understanding this will make it much easier for you to navigate through the extensive classification of Japan's national drink. Let's start at the very beginning, that is, with rice, which is undoubtedly the main ingredient of sake. I guess you won't be surprised to learn that there are special sorts of sake rice in Japan. Such rice is called sakamai and is distinguished from table rice by its large grain size, low protein content and, on the contrary, high starch content. But it's more than that. In ordinary Japanese rice, the proteins, fats and starches are distributed through the grain fairly evenly, while in sake rice all the starch is concentrated in the starch pocket called shinpaku, which is then surrounded by proteins, fats and minerals. You can see the separation even with the naked eye if you look at the grain against the light. It would seem that sakamai is just a dream come true for any sake maker. Polish it, leaving only the starchy core and have perfect ingredient at hand at all times. Cool. But there is a problem. Few farmers want to grow sake rice. The sometimes one meter tall sakamai stalks are difficult to grow and even harder to harvest because the weight of the grains often causes them to fall to the ground. In addition, Japanese harvesters are simply not designed for such a tall rice, and farmers have to reap the crop by hand, making sake rice an extremely risky, labor-intensive and expensive product. Therefore, despite the availability of special rice, most sake is brewed with less expensive table rice instead. Once at the sake brewery, the rice is first of all sent for polishing. Depending on the type of rice and the sake it is intended for, the degree to which the grains are polished will vary greatly. For example, there is no point in polishing table rice meant for inexpensive sake to a high degree, as fats, proteins and minerals are evenly distributed through the grain. It will be sufficient to just get rid of the brown exterior shell. Sakamai, on the other hand, loves polishing, 
as it gives the resulting sake a cleaner taste and sweeter aroma. Polishing, however, even in today's mechanized environment, takes a lot of time and energy. Milling rinds down to 50% takes around 30 hours and down to one of the lowest industry rates, 23%, requires a total of 96 hours or as much as 4 days. By the way, the rice dust left from polishing then goes on its own fascinating journey. This dust is called komenuka, and from the sake brewery it finds its way into the production of traditional pickles, rice crackers and sweets, as well as distilled alcohol, cattle feed and even beauty products, where it is treated as a valuable ingredient. The polished rice is then washed and soaked in water until it has absorbed about 30% of its original weight. Next, the rice is steamed, and ideally afterwards it should retain its shape and firmness while be soft inside, not wet, but moist and shiny at the cut. The steamed rice is divided into two parts. One will go straight into the fermenting wort, and the other will become the base for koji. Making koji is considered to be the most important and complicated part of sake production. And it is the direct responsibility of the master brewer himself, or even kojishi, the special craftsman in charge of koji. Although at first glance there is not much going on at this stage. Steamed rice is placed evenly in special shallow boxes, and kojikin mold, also known as aspergillus orize, the same one used to make soy sauce is sprinkled on top of it. All you have to do is wait a couple of days and voila. But that's just how it looks at first glance. In reality, koji mold is a very fussy lady. How it will grow depends on many factors, such as how moist the rice is, what is the temperature in the room and weather outside, or for example, what did the master brewer ate for breakfast. If kojikin is satisfied, the mold will first cover the outside of the rice and then begin to penetrate the inside of the grains, in about two days turning them into miniature cotton balls that, I have to admit, look rather cute. When the work of kojikin is over, the starch in the grains is converted into sugar, which will soon become a food for the yeast. During the next stage, koji is reunited in a fermentation tank with the rest of the steamed rice and then mixed with water. Then yeast is added to turn the sugar created by koji into alcohol. Now we've got the yeast starter. And if previously sake brewers had to rely on relatively wild yeast that lived within the walls of the brewery, now they have a choice of about 300 yeast options they can order through the Japan Sake Brewers Association. But since the type of yeast largely determines the flavor of the sake, some sake makers are willing to go an extra mile and in the old-fashioned manner each year save a portion of the yeast mixture poured in the brewery to preserve the characteristic flavor and aroma of their drink. The resulting mixture is left alone for a while and then a new batch of steamed rice, koji and water is added to it 
three times within four days. This is done in order to maintain the right balance of sugar and yeast in the tank. The addition of ingredients occurs on the first, third and fourth days, while the second day is called odori, the dance. The dance of the yeast, which can multiply uninterrupted during this day. A few days later, white foam will appear on the surface of the mixture, that is now called moromi. The amount of this foam will grow day by day, symbolizing that the fermentation process is going well and sugar is actively turning into alcohol, creating carbon dioxide bubbles on the surface. After about a month of fermentation, kojikin and yeast will finish their work, turning rice into cloudy liquid with 20% alcohol content. To separate the sake from the remaining rice solids, the mixture is pressed through a cloth. Many breweries still use the traditional method of pouring moromi into special cotton sacks, which are then loaded into a large wooden box called fune. A press lid is placed on the top of the box, causing the sake to flow out through a special opening, leaving all the solids conveniently bagged for later use. The resulting filtered sake is called genshu, which means raw and processed sake. It still has an alcohol content of 20%, but it is soon diluted with water to the customary 1517. Once upon a time, that was the end of it. But then after a while the sake, which has been kept at room temperature, became cloudy and lost its flavor and aroma. And in the 16th century sake brewers somehow realized that if freshly pressed sake is briefly heated, the problem disappears. Heating kills harmful bacteria and stops the work of enzymes, halting the fermentation process. This is how, long before Louis Pasteur, pasteurization became an integral part of the sake-making process. In a modern era of refrigeration, though, nothing prevents those who wish to try and pasteurize sake from doing so. Such sake is called namazake. Bacteria and enzymes are still alive and active in it, and the fermentation process is merely slowed down by sitting in the fridge. But even today most sake is still pasteurized. Twice actually. First time after filtration, and again when it is bottled. Some sake makers prefer to reduce this number to just one. So, if sake is pasteurized only after filtration and then bottled while minimizing the contact with air, it is called namatsume. And if it is kept cold and pasteurized only before bottling, it is called namachozo. Pasteurized or not, all sake ends up in the bottle and on the store shelf. But before I get into detail about all the different types of sake, I want to tell you a little story about how important water is in sake production. Because we've covered all the other ingredients and I feel like it's unfair to leave it out. Water, or more precisely, the minerals it contains, also greatly affects the taste of sake. For instance, while some minerals speed up the fermentation process, others slow it down. As a result, even using the same rice, yeast and koji mold will result in two different tastes in sake, quite crisp and dry one in hard mineral-rich water 
and smoother, softer tasting one from Softwater. So, here is the story. In 1717, a business named Sakura Masamune established itself in a famous sake-making district of Nada. The owner had two sake breweries located in the neighboring villages of Uozaki and Nishinomiya. All the ingredients as well as the sake-making methods were identical at the two breweries, but year after year the sake from Nishinomiya tasted better. The sixth head of the Yamamura family, Tazayamon, decided to investigate the secret of sake from Nishinomiya. He tried changing master brewers and brewery workers, making sure that both breweries were indeed getting the same ingredients, but all in vain. There was one last thing left. Water. Tazayamon loaded a few ox carts with water from Nishinomiya and sent them to the sake brewery in Uozaki. And... and it worked! The sake from both breweries turned out equally delicious. This is how the famous Miyamizu, the water from Nishinomiya, was discovered. The legendary water, filtered and filled with minerals by the neighboring Rokko mountains, making it the perfect match for sake production. Now that you're familiar with the ingredients of sake and the process of making it, let's take a look at the various types of the drink. First, there is futsushu, an ordinary sake. It is the simplest, cheapest sake made from table rice with a low polishing percentage, to which a small amount of distilled alcohol and sometimes sugar and amino acids were added during the production process. This type of sake is dominant on the market, it doesn't taste like a sommelier's dream, but it's also not a horrible triple diluted sake of the post-war years I told you about in a previous episode. It's just an ordinary sake, nothing fancy. Premium sake is much more interesting. Here, the division into categories begins from the very moment the rice enters the brewery, namely, with polishing. Rice for premium sake is at least 30% polished, which leaves us with about 70% of the grain. And this last number you will later see printed on the label. It is called Seimai Buai. But don't worry, you don't have to remember how it's called. There are only two numbers waiting for you on the sake bottle. One under 20, which is the alcohol content. The second one is over 20, which is the polishing ratio. Then, premium sake is divided into two categories. Sake made with a small amount of distilled alcohol, honjozo, and sake made without alcohol or anything else other than rice, kojikin and yeast, junmaishu. Since labeling rules prohibit mentioning water and yeast in sake composition, on the bottle of such sake you will only see two ingredients, rice and koji. So, even if the label is only in Japanese, it's simple. If there are only two ingredients, it's junmai. If there are more, it is not. Moving forward. If after polishing the rice grains instead of 70%, you are left with 60 or less, this is ginjo, the fruit-flavored sake that saved the industry in the 80s. If you have 50% or less of the grain left over, it's 
Daiginjo. Note here that 70, 60 and 50 are the minimum percentages for being included in the category. In practice, every brewer follows his or her own criteria of quality, and it is not rare to find, for example, Ginjo that by its polishing ratio could be considered Daiginjo, but for some reason didn't become one. One of the typical causes for that is unwillingness of a producer to put two sake of the same category on the market. And so, a sake with the highest polishing ratio was given the title of Daiginjo, and the one with a lower one became Ginjo. In addition to the taste of the sake, polishing ratio also affects its price. And that makes sense. The more the grains are polished, the more rice it takes to produce sake, and so the more expensive this sake will be. Now, let's take a step back to the categories of Junmaishu and Honjozo. Because the division of sake into categories, depending on whether or not alcohol has been added to it, extends to high levels of polish too. The word Honjozo disappears here. So, Ginjo or Daiginjo made with alcohol added to them are simply called Ginjo or Daiginjo. But if the sake is made only from rice and fits the definition of Junmaishu, it receives a double name – Junmai Ginjo or Junmai Daiginjo. That's how categories of sake tell us information about their composition and production process, and not at all about the quality of the product. This is a myth. Junmai Daiginjo is not better than Honjozo. They're just very different. But yes, Junmai Daiginjo will be noticeably more expensive, just because it takes more time and ingredients to make. In addition to the basic classification, there are some interesting types of sake produced in somewhat different way. Let's start with Nigori sake, unfiltered sake. Once upon a time, all sake was Nigori sake. But for some unknown reason, sake brewers rather quickly began to filter their drink, and around the Middle Ages, filtered sake became the norm. Nigori, however, did not disappear. Sake brewers did not produce it, but homemade sake was often unfiltered. Then, at the end of the 19th century, Nigori sake lost its status as sake altogether. The reason for that was the new tax laws of the Meiji government, which allowed only filtered drink to be called sake and sold as such. It was not until the 1960s that Nigori sake made its comeback when one of Kyoto's sake breweries decided to revive its production. The difference between nigori and ordinary sake is visible to the naked eye. It is not transparent, but cloudy white due to residual rice solids. And its consistency can vary from slightly cloudy to almost porridge-like one you could probably eat with a spoon. There is an even more curious subtype of nigori. Kasei nigori, translated as active or living sake. And living it is indeed. It is bottled before the yeast completes its work. The living yeast in turn produces carbon dioxide, making the sake slightly carbonated. 
Another somewhat rare variety of unfiltered sake is called Muroka. Unlike Nigori sake, it was filtered through the cloth, but did not go through additional filtration with activated charcoal. Such sake tends to have a richer, but also somewhat coarse flavor. Moving to the next stage of sake production, pasteurization. Here we meet namazake, or unpasteurized sake. I explain about it in details when describing the pasteurization process itself. And so I only have to remind you that unpasteurized sake still undergoes fermentation, which is why it should be kept in the fridge, or it would quickly turn cloudy, start to smell of yeast, or even spoil. But if stored properly, namazaki will give you a more refreshing and vibrant taste than pasteurized sake. Filtered, pasteurized, bottled. It turns out that you can stray from the classic process at this stage as well. Meet taruzake, sake matured in a barrel made from Japanese cedar. Such a barrel is called taru, hence the name taruzake. Japanese cedar gives sake a quiet, strong wooden aroma, which nowadays has its advocates and critics who claim that the smell of wood makes it impossible to taste the real flavor of the drink. In any case, taruzake is not a very common type of sake. Besides, in the old pre-bottle days, all sake was stored in cedar barrels, and today, taruzake is probably the easiest way to imagine sake from the past. You can, of course, literally try sake from the past. Not very distant, but still. The aged sake is called koshu. And while its popularity is on the rise and the balanced earthy flavor already has its admirers, koshu is still a rarity. Most sake sadly only deteriorates with time, and it is recommended to consume it within a year from the date of bottling, indicated on the label. If you really want to taste sake from the past, forget about koshu and start hunting for yamahai or kimoto, sake brewed using the ancient technology. In the old days, as now, the barrel of sake began with an yeast starter called moto, that is, rice, koji, and water. And yeast, you might add. And yeast. Except that in the old days, the yeast had to get into the barrel on its own, not out of a bottle. Anyway, it was believed that in order to start the fermentation process, ingredients in the barrel had to be mashed. And that was what the brewery workers did for many hours, using special wooden poles. This process, used in sake production since the 12th century, was called Yama Oroshi and the method of making sake itself was called kimoto, living yeast starter. In the 20th century, or more precisely in 1909, scientists at the National Institute of Brewing Research found out that all this work has been done for nothing, and that koji mold was perfectly capable of working on its own. All brewers had to do was to add a little more water to the mixture, and slightly raise the temperature of the room where the barrel was located. This is how the Yama Oroshi Haishimoto method, 
that is, e-starter made without Yama Oroshi, came into being. Not with the Tan, just Yamahai. The age of Yamahai, however, was not long. Just two years later, scientists realized that lactic acid was essential for sake fermentation. During the traditional sake making, it would gradually form in a barrel, on its own as a product of yeast activity. But why wait when you can just add it? The scientists thought and presented the sake makers with sokujomoto, literally accelerated yeast starter. Accelerated moreover by half, shortening the process of making yeast starter from a whole month to two weeks. Needless to say, everyone was happy to use the new method. And today, sokujomoto is the standard way of sake making. But if you're lucky enough, you might occasionally come across sake made using one of the old methods. In this case, the label will always tell you if the sake is made using the Yamahai Okimoto method. Due to the slower development of lactic acid, taste of such sake is starter, sweeter and gamier. It also has more depths and umami. If you remember the episode about soy sauce, I believe you are now drawing many parallels between shoyu and sake. So here is another one. The final sake of our list today is called kijoshu. In the production of this sake, some of the water is substituted for the previously prepared sake. The result is a rather sweet dessert wine-like drink. But unlike double fermented soy sauce, very little of it is produced. I have never seen such a drink before. Let's say you went to the store and found yourself a nice bottle of sake. What's next? You probably need to heat it up somehow, right? Or should good sake be chilled instead? Let me stop you right here. Warming bad sake, cooling good one, is a myth. Although it does have some basis. Indeed, few people drink hot daiginjo. But the issue here is not the quality of the drink, but its characteristics. Sweet, fruity daiginjo simply doesn't taste good when heated. Sake made with less polished rice, though, tends to handle it better. And that's just one example, there are actually a lot more variables involved. But look at it from the point of view of an average visitor to a Japanese restaurant outside of Japan. No one has ever told him about the production and types of sake and how the polishing ratio affects the price of it. And what does he see? Expensive and so probably good sake is served cold, and cheaper, therefore inferior one, is served hot. The myth is ready. To be honest, I've been living it for quite a long time too. And even in Japan it seemed that nobody was going to debunk it. But then I started visiting sake breweries and at some point noticed that they always had sake of different price categories and for some reason valued all those categories equally and served them all cold. Well, let me tell you that visiting museums attached to sake breweries and attending tastings left me with a lot more questions than answers. Worse yet, by constantly mentioning the polishing ratio, They've fully solidified my belief in the supremacy of Daiginjo in the sake ranking. 
But I'm getting off topic. The myth about hot and cold sake is also very convenient, because it gives you clear instructions on how to drink it, when in fact they don't exist. Pretty much any sake can be drunk chilled or heated. It all depends on how chilled or how heated it is, and on your personal preferences. And the only way to find out is to experiment. Buy a bottle of sake and try it at different temperatures. You will learn a lot, not only about that particular sake, but about your own preferences in sake as well. I can, however, tell you about the temperatures at which sake can be drunk. So let's move from cold to hot. Cold sake in general is called reishu. And following the trend on light fruity sake, it is gaining more and more popularity. Cold sake is refreshing, but it's also easy to go overboard with it and get an awful hangover as an aftertaste. So be careful. There are three main categories of chilled sake. Yuki here, snow cold at 5 degrees Celsius. Hana here, cherry blossom cold at 10 degrees Celsius. And suzu here, evening cool, 15 degrees Celsius. Next comes sake at room temperature. And to those of you who study Japanese, the name of it may seem strange. It is called ohia, which means chilled or cool. I know it's confusing, but it's a historical thing. In pre-refrigeration times, sake was divided into heated and unheated. Or cool. Ohia. The most extensive category, however, is hot sake, also called kanzake or okan. Again, historical realities. While chilled sake is a rather new concept, the Japanese have been drinking heated sake since around the 10th century. Influenced by Chinese medicine, they believed that hot foods and drinks were healthier than cold ones, as the latter would cool the vital center of the body. In fact, some of my older Japanese friends still believe that breakfast should be always served hot, and that a cold meal in the morning can damage your stomach and weaken the immune system. This was also the opinion of Kaibara Ekiken, a famous Edo period physician who in the late 17th century recommended those who wished to gain longevity to drink sake only warmed up, no matter how hot it was outside. But during the same Edo period, restaurants also had professional sake heaters, called okanban, so drinking sake at your favorite temperature was easy. Nowadays, one can only dream of such luxuries, and modern restaurants usually offer heated sake in only one or two categories. At the comfort of your own home, however, you can try them all and taste how sake gradually changes its taste and becomes sweeter and sweeter. No magic, it's just that the higher the temperature, the better human tongue perceives the sweetness. So, what are options? Sake heated up to 30 degrees Celsius is called hinatakan, sun-warmed. At 35 degrees it becomes almost body temperature, which is why it's called hitohadakan. 40 degrees is nurukan, which is lukewarm. And this is one of the two options 
that you can usually choose at the restaurant. Heat it up to 45 degrees and you get jokan. At 50 degrees, heating sake is called atsukan, hot. And this is the second and the most common serving temperature in restaurants. So common in fact that many people call all heated sake atsukan. Do you want it even hotter? Then the last option for you is tobikiri atsukan, extra hot sake, heated to 55 degrees Celsius. You don't want to heat sake more than that. You'll get an almost non-alcoholic bittersweet rice syrup. In other words, all things are good moderation. And by the way, when heating sake, keep in mind that after it cools down, it will never get back the taste it had before heating. Some accents and aromas will be lost forever. So, heat sake gradually and only as much as you intend to drink. The rest is better kept cool. And while I'm giving advices, let's talk about the heating itself. If you want, you can warm sake even in a microwave. But since this way you have almost no control over the result, it is considered better to do it an old-fashioned way. Pour water into a small pot. Put a ceramic bottle with sake in it so that two-thirds of it is underwater and heat over low fire until it reaches desired temperature. And that's about it for today. One last piece of advice. Remember that in 90% of cases, sake is fairly priced. Unlike with wine, the odds of finding something very cheap but great when buying sake are pretty slim. But it is also very unlikely that you will overpay for a mediocre drink. The price range is not that big either, so try different types of sake from different producers and regions and find out which one suits you the best. Just make sure not to overdo it, because drinking too much alcohol is bad for your health. For those of you who wish to learn more, I made a bonus episode about glasses, tumblers, cups and other containers for sake, available with the link in the description. Remember, as always, at japanexplained.com you can find more information on the topic and admire the gorgeous sake bottle designs. I'd be really happy if you share this episode with your friends, leave me a comment or decide to donate to cover some of the podcast expenses, because only with your support will I be able to devote my time to making the podcast and not paying the bills for it. Talk to you soon. Bye.